want to talk to you about out of Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. We're, we're taking a season to go through the Beatitudes. And again, I, I want to point out that I'm indebted to Mark Scandrett and uh, his work called uh, The Ninefold Path of Jesus. That is, he's done a lot of work with a group of artists and musicians. <coughs> Pardon me. Uh, and they, they've coined themselves as the Ninefold Collective really inviting men and women to just begin thinking about what it would look like to live our lives based out of the Beatitudes. So I'm going to talk to you this morning about the way of lament. Um, you know, this short video that was put together, it's not hard to interpret it because there's, there's no lack, is there, for things that cause us to put our hands on our head and shake our head. It was this morning, um, I, you know, I, I, our, our youngest has, is going through, a, hopefully, a season of, uh, of great uh, fascination with Korean culture, interestingly, okay? And she, her sister says, you're not Korean. And it's just like, no, but you know, I mean, she'll, she's studies the language she likes. There's it all started with her enjoying a music group from Korea, and uh, I shared with her yesterday. I said, "Tragic news out of Korea: 153 young people crushed." Um, this morning, I, you know, after my time of prayer and, and preparing and getting myself prepared like I normally do, I usually check what the headlines are. And, you know, two bombings in Somalia yesterday that took the lives of over 100. There's no lack for things that cause us to say, oh, my goodness. Um, you know, it was, it was a day in 1998, I believe it was in October of 98, that I, I had three brothers, so the four brothers and my father took a trip that was we w figured it would be a once-in-a-lifetime trip, and it turned out that it was, that we went together to my dad's homeland of Holland, and each day was an interesting day that we were, we were enjoying being able to hear the stories of my dad's childhood, and then while we're driving around in this van, and, you know, it was just a lot of, it was fun. It was fun, <laughs> you know. Uh, as we're, he's wanting to stop and eat things that, uh, you know, my stepmother would never let him eat, and we'd let him go ahead and eat it. You know, it was just, we were, we were having a ball, okay? Going from village to village and just trying to listen in. But one of the times that, that had piqued an in interest, especially for my brother, who's just a couple years older than me, and I, was that we'd heard the stories of my dad's time in the concentration camp, 11 days that he spent in Vesterborg. This is the same inter Nazi internment camp that Anne Frank and and uh, Corey Ten Boone, anyone out of out of uh, you know out of Holland, were funneled through there on into the death camps that were mostly in Poland and other parts of Eastern uh, Europe. And so uh, when we, we finally were able to talk our father into saying, you know, we really would like to see that because he said, why do you want to go there? Said, because Dad. We'd like to see it. And so we went there, and as we arrived, um, 
interestingly, my dad flipped into this mode where it's like he, he was zoned out in some other place. Uh, they were collecting money for people that, you know, when, when you went into the entrance, he just walked right past. We had to explain to the lady that he had been in that camp, and she said, you just go, just go. But we lasted there. Now, see, for me and my brother, we were hoping that there might be some time to be able to connect some parts of our story. For me, I, I wanted to be able to just slow down, to be sober about this story that my father was there, and out of the 300,000, less than 10% even survived at that camp. He was one of them. That's a part of my story. My dad lasted there, I think, about 15 minutes. It might have been a little bit longer. And my brother Paul and I had been were walking ahead just trying to take in the scenes, and, and then my brother Hunts went with my dad, and my brother John came to get us and said, we've got to go now. And I was a bit perturbed uh, because I felt like, you know, come on, let's, let's, let's try to take, take in the moment. And, and here's what's interesting. See, for my dad, when we got in the car and we said, Dad, you know, why, why couldn't we? And he, he deflected. He didn't want to talk about it. And that was his posture for things that were painful in his life. Uh, he had, you know, he, he memorized the verse out of Philippians, uh, you know, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what lies ahead. I heard that. If I heard it once, I heard it a hundred times during my mother's illness and her death and, and the time following. And, and you see, my dad had learned a posture of survival, being a survivor of the war and all of those awful atrocities that he had had to experience, which was this. And, and you could almost see it, he, although he didn't present it physically this way, you could see it this way which is, we're not going there. You guys know what I'm talking about? Everybody, right? Um, Denise and I were on a recent holiday together. We enjoyed it. Uh, but as we were standing in line for dinner one night, the couple directly in front of us, I heard them talking. I leaned over to Denise. I said, they're from Holland. I can hear the accent. <laughs> so I leaned forward and said, I, I just got to ask you, where are you from? They said, we're from Holland. I said, I knew it. And uh, interestingly, and the reason it was so distinctive for me is because they grew up in, uh, in Friesland, which is just one province north of where my parents were from. So, again, the accent would be very similar. So I was like, yay, my ears can still hear. I'm getting older, but I can still hear. But as we were sharing stories uh, with this couple that were just a little bit older than us, they talked about their parents and all that they survived. And, and the woman of this couple said, uh, you know, my father was in Indonesia. I said, my dad was as well. She said, did he ever talk about it? I said, no, he didn't. I said, neither did my dad. And then they went on and said that, uh, interestingly, she, she related that her dad had an incredible moment uh, when a friend of his who had survived Auschwitz, had gone through Westerbork and, and survived Auschwitz, and uh, they reconnected in their later years and they said what they thought would be just a cup of coffee turned into hours. And literally, he said, suddenly it's as if it all came out. And his friend, in, before he died, wrote a book about all that he had gone through because he could no longer hold it down. Now, for my dad, 
This was 1998 for my dad. That, that climax moment happened in February of 2000 when my sister and her two children were tragically killed in a car accident just, just very quickly. Uh, obviously, it was a quick uh, death for them. But uh, it was in that moment that my dad could no longer, he couldn't, he couldn't do that anymore. And every time we saw him, and, and in fact, I'll be honest in saying that for a little while, it was a little bit annoying for me because I was watching him grieve and, and feel pain, and I at times was like, where was that grieving dad when we were, you know, you were standing in front of me a couple of months after my mother died, and you didn't want to talk about it. And when we buried our son, that you would again rehearse you know, forgetting what's behind and straining toward what lies ahead. Ben, you're going to make it. And he felt like that's what I needed to survive, to get through. Um, but suddenly in that moment, at the death of Carla and Katie and Benjamin, he, he couldn't do it anymore. He couldn't live at that posture. Now, I want to say something about this. That posture comes to us almost instinctively. I want to try to hold it away from me. Avoid that pain. Turn away. And we're talking about postures as it relates to the Beatitudes, and I would say that's the one that comes to us instinctively is, is that we turn our head and we hold it away. Um, my father, uh, I want to say this clearly, I'm not unresolved about the posture that he had for much of his life because later, he finally did turn, and he had a whole different posture in those years right before he passed of facing the pain and talking about it and sitting with us and weeping and at times not being able to say anything but weeping. Um, blessed, Jesus said, are those who mourn. I don't see that on a lot of people's walls, right? For they will be comforted. Happy to be envied are those who are unhappy. I, Jesus, can we get on to the more upbeat part of the message? And yet, this is what he proclaims. And, and I want to I just go straight to the point. At the apex of Jesus' life and ministry on the cross, he cries out in a loud voice. Now, wait a minute. Remember last week when we talked about the first beatitude, we recognized that this, the, the first instinct is that we come into life with closed hands, that closed-handed posture of fear and not having enough, and that we're invited to the way of trust and open-handed trust. And we looked at Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing, right? Jesus at the fullness and the apex of his ministry is on the cross, and he quotes Psalm 22, verse 1, my God, my God, why? Have you forsaken me? And oh, by the way, I want to point this out, that I know I'm not reading that the way that many of our translations put that comma, because first of all, let me point out theologically, the comma isn't in the original text. 
Secondly, let me point out something else. You see, because we have often quoted it as this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As if that was a declaration. And many a bad theological line has been formed from concluding that somehow the Father took the same posture and turned his back. And yet the Apostle Paul locates the Father in that moment, in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 19, 2 Corinthians 5, 19, write it down, memorize it. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's sins against themselves, which is, by the way, lines up with verse 24 of Psalm 22, which is why I move the comma when I quote verse 1. Why? Have you forsaken me? Verse 24 says, He has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from me. When he cried out for help, he heard. Beloved, the good news that Jesus proclaims in this beatitude Blessed are those who mourn is his confidence in the Father to bring solace in the face of pain. Blessed are those who mourn. See, that instinct of turning and avoiding, it's familiar for all of us. But Jesus invites us to a different posture, to lament to face the pain, to not try to fix it. No pretense required, simply burying our head in our hands. The original word for mourn or lament is to wail. In the original uh, context in which Jesus is proclaiming this, in that culture, they would tear their garments and lament. You know, truth be told, I don't think I've heard very many sermons on what it means to lament. Perhaps I've heard a lot of encouragement about the idea of of overcoming, of finding joy again, but sitting and lamenting. Job's friends come to him in the midst of his pain, and they set and say nothing as he sits in lament beloved there are things that happen in our lives that don't need words and actually cheapen words when we try to use them see Jesus says blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted there's this book in the Old Testament that If you've memorized all the books of the Old Testament, you'll know you're you're familiar with it, right? Lamentations, lamentations. And it's tied into the prophets, into that grouping of the prophets. But actually, out of Jewish tradition, there's something really interesting about this. The book of Lamentations comes from the Hebrew word ekah, which means how. And the book isn't so much about how as it is about why. In Lamentations, God's people are saying, why? 
Why is it that it feels like God's favor isn't even evident in our life? In Jewish tradition, the book of Lamentations is a part of five sacred scrolls that make up the final third of the Hebrew Bible. Now watch this. Each one of those scrolls is read as a part of the five major holidays and festivals of of Jewish tradition. Lamentations is read on the saddest day of the year, Tishban, the day of remembrance, the day that they remember the destruction of the temple of Jerusalem, but also all of the destructions of, of God's people since that time, including things like the Holocaust. It's an annual day of fasting and remembering to tell their story. Watch this, to honor the pain of their story. There's something right about lament. Now, there are some right now to this day, and you can do a little research on this, but it's true among some in the Jewish tradition, they've even become superstitious. They don't want to travel on that day because they don't want to accidentally die on the saddest day of the year. Or have something bad happen, you know, if I do something on that day, you know. They're missing the point of lament. Lament isn't about avoiding pain. It's about facing it. Naming it. Recognizing it. Sitting it with it. You know, I, I, I'm going to come back to this again, but it struck me. Last week we looked at the way of trust. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing, verse 1. This week's beatitude that we look at is, blessed are those who mourn and lament. Psalm 22, oh wait, that's, that's right there next to Psalm 23. Now either the psalmist is really goofed up, you know, got bipolar and needs to take his pills, Or there's something right about lament. And and I want to say as Western evangelicals, we need to let this message get in us a little bit. Not to become, you know, all downtrodden individuals, but to recognize there's something here to be learned. Uh, This is how it's worded in the Jewish tradition, to remember where it hurts, how it got that way, to tell the journey to honor the pain, not become the story, meaning that your pain is not who you are. Does that make sense? It's a part of who we are. It's part of our story. Let me come back to what the Jewish tradition. If lamentation is a sacred text, and it is, listen to me. This is, this is a Jewish statement. Your lamentations or your laments are also holy. A lament must be heard, honored, and looked into to see what you need. When a lament moves on to become a part of your sacred history, no longer the foreground of your daily life, then healing has begun. Blessed are those who mourn, who lament. They will be comforted. Let me, let me talk to you about that word comfort. That word in the original language means to come near, to be near someone, to call to one side, it's about presence. So 
Jesus is proclaiming presence in the spaces that I want to avoid and turn away from. Blessed are those who recognize God can be present in the pain. They'll be comforted. I love the way that Jewish phrase rehearsed that. Your laments are holy. You know, I, what came to my mind was Genesis 28, 16. Jacob is, you know, on the run, puts his head on a rock, has a dream, wakes up in the morning and says, oh, oh let me give a name for this place because, watch this, Genesis 28, 16. The Lord was in this place and I did not know it. Here's the truth for me. So many of the painful places of my life that I want to avoid, I want to learn a different posture that says, Lord, you're even here. Even when I didn't know it. Can I further make this point? John 11. Jesus is on his way to his friend's house. And he waits. And his friend dies. And Mary and Martha meet him. First thing that's, you know, Mary says, like, if you were here, it'd be different. Verse 33 of John 11, when Jesus therefore saw Mary weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he was deeply troubled. Look that up in the original text. What it means is that it, he's deeply troubled inside of him. He is moved. A couple of verses later, that's the favorite verse for every toddler who's trying to learn how to memorize Scripture. Jesus wept. You got a verse. Awesome. There it is. All done. Two words. Jesus wept. Tie that in with verse 33. This isn't a tear rolling down his cheek. This is Jesus struggling even to keep composure. He's lamenting in the pain. In the loss. And then he says, Martha, didn't I tell you if you believe you would see God's glory? The place of lament becomes the place of restored life and Lazarus is raised. It's a powerful, beautiful thing. Now, unfortunately, some have taken Jesus' words as a sort of rebuke or a way to fix things. You know, if you, if you can do that right, then you don't ever have to feel the pain. Well, I ask you, why did Jesus lament? Deeply troubled, weeping. I submit to you that part of lament is to allow pain and sorrow and the sorrow of that story to be seen, to be heard, and to let it touch me. Not as a problem to be fixed, but as a place to be embraced. That God can come even here, even here. So I want, I want to say this clearly. The idea that we would take those words from Jesus, that I can believe my way away from pain, that is a lie. That is a wrong theological conclusion. Jesus is saying, where you think I can't show up, I am here. And the Father can be here. Now, that's not the only place that we encounter Jesus in lament. The most powerful one, right, in the garden, my God, uh, uh, 
Lord, let this cup pass from me. And then just a few hours later, he's on the cross. My God, my God, why? Have you forsaken me? The cross becomes the fullest expression of lament where the pain of humanity is laid bare and Jesus faces the pain and he knows that there will be such a thing as a resurrection, but he looks squarely into the pain. Blessed are those who lament. They'll be comforted. What are they going to find? Resurrection presence and life. No, I'm not stating that this is conclusive evidence that the pain will end at this place or that place. What I'm saying is that Jesus considers the lament, the waiting, the wailing, the identifying as a holy place that he comes to inhabit. I was meditating before I got to Psalm 22 and 23. It was like earlier in the week I was I knew this is where I was going. I was considering that Denise and I have been having this banter about, you know, blessed are those who lament. It's okay to feel sadness. Um, and this has been ongoing, but I, I was, had been meditating on Psalm 20, or I, almost daily I pray through Psalm 23. And then uh, earlier in the week I was meditating on Psalm 42. My soul is in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Uh, I long for the true God. Where can I stand and feel his comfort? Right now I'm overwhelmed by sorrow and pain. I can't stop feasting on my tears. Same guy who said, you prepare a table of abundance before me in the presence of those who, who trouble me. You prepare a way before me. You bring me through the valley of the shadow of death. That's you, God. And yet, he's the one saying, I'm feasting on my tears. Where can, where, you know, people around me are saying, where is your God whom you claim will save? Verse 4, this is out of the voice translation, Psalm 42. With a broken heart, I remember times before you. When I was with your people, the better days, I used to lead them happily into God's house, singing with joy, shouting thanksgiving with abandon, joining the congregation in celebration. Why am I so overwrought, so disturbed? Why can't I hope in God? Despite all my emotions, I will believe and praise the one who saves me and is my life. My God, my soul is so traumatized. The only help is remembering you wherever I may be. In the roar of your waterfalls, ancient depths surged, calling out the deep. All your ways break over me. Am I drowning? So I'm like, Jesus, which one is, you know, which one is this? Table of abundance, surely all that is good and beautiful will follow me all the days of my life, and I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. All oh, awesome. You know, one day in the house of the Lord is better than a thousand besides Psalm 27. Well, awesome, victorious. Same guy says, I'm drowning. And then it struck me. 22, or excuse me, 23 is preceded by 22. 23, the Lord, you're my shepherd, I, I lack nothing, is preceded by my God, my God. Why? The lament, beloved, is what I'm trying to say. 
according to Scripture, is not only normal, but it is holy. So how do I practice the way of lament? Um, a few things I want to I try to scribble down here. I added a few thoughts here, even from my notes uh, that I gave you, Angie, but here we go. Number one is this. Dare to name and sit with your pain without qualifiers, without trying to fix it. Just to lament and to wait. So consider giving it, of, of writing it even, to give voice to your pain. Um, this is where for me it's been very helpful to even rehearse prayers of the saints. Uh, I, I use some really cool, uh, there, there's a, a really, really good uh, book of prayer liturgies called Every Moment Holy. I really enjoy that. But if you really want to just start us saying, you know, okay, what, what would it look like for me to give voice to my pain or to write it out or speak it out? Well, consider the prayer book of Jesus. Jesus had a prayer book? Yes, he did. It was called the Psalms. And begin to just pray them. You can do one a day. 150 gets you through about half the year. You get to 119, you better have coffee. It'll take a minute. But there's some, there's some honesty in lament in the Psalms. And, beloved, this, was the, this is, was, and is the prayer book of God's people. Number three. Consider what it means to mourn with those who mourn, which means this, beloved, watch. Oh, I just, this is so important. Um, in a fix-it culture, when we hear things, our impulse, this has been, you know, hallelujah, I've, we've been married 39 years, but I still want to try to fix stuff that Denise tells me about, and she still looks at me and says, you don't have to fix everything. You guys know where I'm going with this, right? We That's like our impulse. Oh, you're sharing this because you need me to do something. No, actually part, part of lament is allowing somebody's pain to be seen and to be heard without you trying to fix it or offer a solution or a spiritual solution. Solutions, not necessary. What, what it means to mourn when, when I can say... It isn't right that this has occurred in our culture and in the world, but you know what caused that. No, I, I don't know. This isn't part of that discussion. What we're trying to say is let's look at injustice and pain and let it be noticed and not ignored. Blessed are those who mourn. By the way, for, for me, one of those times is a couple of years back when I was hearing the discussions that were centered around and then the, the, the triggered responses to people talk, saying something like black lives matter and the triggered responses of people with of skin of a lighter hue. Beloved, part of considering the pain of others is being able to listen long enough to say, wait, I, I want to see and not just try to fix, but I want to hear. Blessed are those who mourn. 
So consider what it means to mourn with those who mourn. Remember that most of us, number four, don't have any better vision than Mary or Martha. And that I'm identifying with this. Lord, if you'd been here, this would have looked different. J.R. Tolkien has a term that he coined in his writing called a eucatastrophe. I think I said it right, eucatastrophe. There we go. Which is suddenly the turn of events. And it, what was a catastrophe? Suddenly there's a turn. Beloved, I want to remind us, this is the good news of the gospel. The tomb is where we locate Jesus' dead body on Friday. And the tomb is where we locate his resurrected body on Sunday, right? Same place. Lord, I need better vision. Give me resurrection vision. Blessed are those who mourn. Jesus reveals in this beatitude his confidence to bring solace to those who will face the pain. Beloved, I want to invite us this morning, um, in closing, to, uh, to a prayer that kind of came together out of a number of different prayers, and so it's a little bit longer um, than uh, what we normally have for a closing prayer, but I want to invite you to stand with me. Let's, let's pray this prayer together, and then we will come to communion together, all right? If you're on the call, I want to encourage you to grab something there. But this, would you pray this together with me? And the beginning of this prayer and the close of this prayer is going to be what the church has historically called the Jesus Prayer, which is simply this, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of David or Son of God, have mercy on us. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on us. Oh God, we find ourselves in a time of great sorrow. Give us the gift of tears that move us beyond sadness into compassion. To, cry, to you we cry out, to you we run, for where else would we go? We feel the weight of our broken world through wars, famines, and in disasters, injustice, hatred, and oppression. The nations desperately need your deliverance. Give us the gift of tears that move us beyond sadness into compassion. Empower us not only to cry about others, but also to weep with them. Teach us to lament more than regret our circumstances. Be near us, O God. Reveal your kingdom to our hearts and our community. Restore to us an awareness of your presence. Help us get back from you in a time of grief. Help us instead to lean into you and to trust you, even when we do not understand your ways. Keep our head above the waters of anguish and our feet from slipping off the ground of truth. Help us see you in these hard times and glorify you in our response. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is your loving kindness and mercy towards those who fear you. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on us. Lord, we come to this, your table, and Lord, we celebrate the gift that you have given to 